Amen. We are in the second of five planned sermons through the short letter of Jude, one of the last books found in your New Testament. If you have your Bibles, you can go ahead and open to Jude. You'll have multiple opportunities to do that. Just by way of introduction, a few comments. We're going to be considering the faith once for all delivered to the saints today. There is one faith, and it has not changed. There have been people in the history of the church who have abused the grace of God, who have twisted the gospel in order to do whatever they want to do and feel good about doing it. People who have turned sinful living into an appropriate expression of Christian freedom. All true. That's happened. And it is clear as we survey the history of the church that the gospel Christ for us. Christ has done it all and we receive it. There's nothing left to do because Christ has done it. Gospel frightens people. When the gospel is preached that way, there are some people who say, "Mm -mm, bro, you can't talk like that. You can't say it like that. Because it's going to lead to lawless living. You can't tell people that everything is done Because people are going to do whatever they want to do. The Church of Rome accused the Reformers of preaching a salvation that would lead to lawlessness. Or, even worse, a salvation that condoned lawlessness. And every holiness movement in the history of the church has said similar things. Bringing this down more specifically to us here at CBC speaking on behalf of our pastors. We do not promote lawlessness. We don't condone it. Though we preach a gospel that opens us up to accusations of that. Nor do we promote works righteousness, not even a little bit. So you might be asking, okay, brother, if that's true, we don't promote lawlessness, we don't condone it, we don't promote works righteousness, not even a little bit, what is it that we do? Well, the short answer, using biblical language, is that we contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. And that is what we're going to consider in our time together this morning. You've already opened your Bibles to the short letter of Jude. I'm going to make a few comments about the book in general, given this is only the second sermon in the series. This letter was written in the mid-first century A.D. to a church that would have been comprised of both Jewish and Gentile believers. The author of the book is a man named Jude, who was the brother of James and half-brother of Jesus of Nazareth, as we considered together last week. Some major themes of the letter are God's saving work in us, God's love for us, and Christ's faithfulness to keep us. We thought about those things pointedly last week. In addition, Jude is going to write of the one faith that has once and for all been delivered to the saints by the apostles and exhort this church to contend for that faith. He writes of the dangers of bad doctrine. He writes of the deceitfulness of sin. He writes with concern for rebellion and immorality and divisiveness in the church. He writes with concern for what I used the phrase last week we call legitimate antinomianism, anti-against namas law, against the law. And we're going to think more about that today. All that by way of introduction to prepare us for these two verses that we're going to consider this morning, Jude 3 and Jude 4. I plan to read these now and we'll consider them together. Please look to the scriptures, beginning with Jude 3. Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain people have crept in unnoticed, who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. We thank God for his word today and every day. I have a pretty simple plan. It's kind of a two-part message. 
First, we're going to look at the text. We're going to observe it. I'm going to seek to explain some things. There's only two verses. We don't need a lot of structure to do that. So that'll be the first part. And then the second part of the sermon, I have several reflections to offer. Some of those are statements. Some of those are questions. We'll consider them together, and we trust the time will be profitable. So let's turn our eyes to verses 3 and 4 as we consider the text and observe it and seek to understand it. The beginning of verse 3, Jude says that he was eager to write to these saints about their common salvation. So he's including himself as an apostle in writing scripture. He's saying, we have a common salvation that I was planning to write to you about. Second part of the verse, however, I found it necessary to write to you, to appeal to you, to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. Something was going on in the church that Jude had become aware of that compelled him to write this way rather than the way he had originally intended. Now, of course, in the providence of God, the Lord has Jude write exactly what God would have him write by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Man makes his own plans. The Lord establishes his steps. There were people, we can understand this from the immediate context of these two verses and from the rest of the letter. There were people who had come into the church and were causing harm. They were propagating false doctrine, false truth, and they were living brashly immoral lives. They were causing division, and they were leading others astray. This is a brief letter, and perhaps a good exercise for you as we make our way through it over these next several weeks is read it periodically during your week. Read it so that you're familiar with the entire context of what it says so that you're better able to engage with small pieces. From the context of the whole letter, these things are clear, that these people were doing these things that I've just mentioned. Jude is calling the church to action against this real threat to the unity and the peace and the harmony of the church. He calls them to contend for, to struggle in behalf of the faith that was once and for all delivered to the saints. The word that's rendered contend was a word most often associated with the arena. So think gladiatorial combat. This is an intense word that's being used. It's important that we understand this piece. The saints of this church, to use the words of John Calvin, were being assailed by the ungodly. These saints were being assailed by the ungodly, and so they stood in need of being prepared to contend for the faith. You see, the promotion of false doctrine and brashly immoral living all under the guise of grace are an assault on the church. They harm these things, harm the saints, and they harm the unity of the body. I don't know that we often think in these terms how the saints and the church are wounded by these things. False teaching is dangerous. Promoting immoral living all under the guise of grace is dangerous. This is not unlike, in some ways, the context of the letter of 1 John, where there, that church had also been assailed by false teaching. And in their case, had also been assailed by apostasy, people abandoning them, leaving the church. And therefore, that church, that congregation, was in need of comfort and encouragement that the apostle gave them in the letter. Now, clarification, this is super important. We're going to think more about this, especially in two weeks' time, in a message that we've already entitled Saints and Scoffers. We're going to think about this, but just track with me for a moment. This distinction makes all the difference in the world. There is mercy all day long for strugglers in the church. There is grace all day long for those who agree with God, who are trusting Christ and fail, even regularly. But the promotion of doctrine that is contrary to orthodoxy is a different thing. And the promotion of immorality as some kind of positive expression of Christian freedom is a different thing. That distinction matters. Verse 4, put your eyes there. 
There are ungodly people in the church who pervert the grace of God, Jude says. They twist and manipulate grace and the gospel into sensuality and in so doing deny the Lord Jesus. It is right that we would call these people heretics, which is a, an old word. Sometimes in the church, that word is thrown around too loosely. We call somebody a heretic who might be a little bit off-center over here on this one theological matter. A heretic, by definition, is a propagator, a person who teaches false doctrine, who holds to false doctrine and encourages others to do the same. The heretics in view were not originally a part of this church. That's clear because Jude says that certain people have crept into the church unnoticed. It's clear that they've come in from the outside, but it's clear in the context, though, that the church would know who these people are. They're referred to as certain people, an unnamed group whom the readers would know. And in saying that they've slipped in unaware, Jude is saying that his hearers are unaware of the danger that these people present to them. Jude's hearers are not aware as they should be of the potential harm to the body of Christ that these people might do. And so, he is writing to awaken them to this danger and to encourage them to contend for the faith. Now, the fact that people like this make their way into the church and exist in the church at all is not a surprise. I think sometimes if we're, if we're honest, we can be prone to anxiety and fear and things like that as human beings. And even this idea that there will be false teachers and people in the church that seek to harm us and seek to harm the unity of the body can be a frightening thought. But it is not as though the Lord is caught off guard by this. This has been foretold long ago which is what Jude even refers to here. Long ago, these people were designated for this condemnation. The words used indicate that this has been written of a long time ago in a former time. And that is actually a comforting reality for us because we can know that when we even encounter things like this, which we have and will, even here at CBC, that nothing strange is happening to us. God has said it would be this way, he is not surprised. He is faithful, and we need not fear, therefore. A few important observations to make on the two verses before we move into our time of reflection. Realize this. It is not that these heretics, these false teachers, these harmful people, it's not that they don't believe in God. That's not the issue. It isn't that they have denied Christ in terms of their profession. It is that they are perverting the grace of God and they're twisting the gospel. Jude's concern is clearly both one of doctrine and conduct. False doctrine and presumptuous, high-handed sinning, all in the name of grace, both of which are an affront to the gospel and to the faith. When Jude uses this phrase, another observation, when he uses this phrase, the faith once for all delivered to the saints, he is not talking about some mere tradition of man. When we use terms like this, the faith once for all delivered, or we use other terms like the rule of faith, the regula fide, a tradition of orthodoxy that's been handed down for 2,000 years, we're not talking about mere traditions of men either. Jesus and Paul both renounce traditions and practices of men that are contrary to the law and the gospel. Read Mark 7. Read Colossians 2. This is not what we're talking about. The New Testament holistically and heartily affirms the reality of a body of apostolic teaching that has been given to the church that we are to affirm, submit to, protect, and teach to other people. The false teachers in this letter, considered in this letter, did not hold to this sacred tradition, the faith once for all delivered to the saints. Instead, they perverted it to make it say something very different. And this observation I'm about to make is as significant as any that we'll make today. For these heretics, these false teachers, their interpretation of grace 
was employed in the service of the cravings of their flesh. I'm going to say that again. For these false teachers, their interpretation of grace was employed in the service of the cravings of their flesh. In other words, they wanted to do what they wanted to do and feel good about doing it, and therefore twisted and manipulated the doctrines of grace and the gospel in order to make what they were doing appropriate. It's important, saints, that we understand what grace is and what grace is not. Oftentimes people might not say it this way, but they act as though this is true. That grace is some kind of tool to call something that is wrong right. Or to call something that's wrong okay. Because of grace. The Lord, you realize, condemns that in his word. The prophet Isaiah wrote these words, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil who put darkness for light and light for darkness. Grace is not a tool to call something that is wrong right. Grace is not a tool to call something that is wrong okay. Grace is the God-given means of dealing with real wrong. Grace is needed precisely because God's law does stand, and we have broken it. So how twisted is it then when God's moral law is disregarded or even dismissed outright all in the name of grace? That's precisely what was happening at the hands of some people in this church to which Jude is writing. It has happened throughout the history of the church. It happens today. There will be more on this later. But inasmuch as it concerns us, we preach law and gospel. Law in all of its God-ordained uses and gospel as the free gift of forgiveness and righteousness and eternal life on account of Christ that is given to sinners. We uphold both. And we do this because it's what the scriptures do. You see, the scriptures were not what was driving the understanding of these false teachers. Rather, it was the lusts and passions and cravings of their flesh that was driving their understanding. They were perverting the grace of God into sensuality, Jude says. That word sensuality makes it very clear that sexual immorality is in view. I don't need to labor this because you understand these things as well as I do. There is nothing new under the sun. The things that you crave... People have always craved. The project of fallen humanity has not changed. In our corruption, we want to be able to do what we want to do with our bodies and feel good about doing it. So a big question for each of us to wrestle with this morning is this one. Is our understanding of the faith being driven by the scriptures and the apostolic tradition? Or is our understanding of the faith being driven by the cravings of our flesh? We are all prone to have a theology of comfort, and we need to be honest about that. Moving towards our time of reflection, just a couple of more comments. The rest of this letter makes clear that these false teachers, these heretics, were present in the church participating in church activity. So in other words, you know, Awanas, RAs, GAs, the potluck, fellowship dinner, they're there. Not many of you grew up in a Southern Baptist background, it doesn't seem. <laughs> but they faked, they feigned allegiance to Christ, right? They fronted like they're loyal to Christ, but in reality were denying him through the propagating of false doctrine and through high-handed presumptuous sinning. Jude is also clear in the rest of the letter that things will not end well for these people. He demonstrates the outcome of their doctrine and of their way of life. These things will ruin them and result in judgment. And in the mind of the apostle, it's clear that this should serve as a warning and a deterrent to the saints who are receiving this letter. So now, 
All of that by way of just observation, explanation, unpacking the text. Let's reflect on these truths together for the rest of our time. The first reflection, we're going to consider for a moment the faith once for all delivered to the saints. What is that faith? In one sense, we could go through the Apostles' Creed or something similar. There's a reason we confess that this morning. That confession, that creed, is nearly 2,000 years old. Let that comfort you this morning, that what we believe and cling to by way of a faith here at CBC is nothing new. We are standing in the line of what saints have believed for a long time. But in order to think about the faith once for all delivered, reason with me. We know from the witness of the scriptures that in the beginning, God made all things. In the beginning, God was there. When everything else got started, God was. And he spoke all things into existence. And he made man uniquely in his image. And he made a covenant with man through our first father, Adam. God's moral law was written into humanity. And alongside that moral law, God gave Adam things he was to do and a particular prohibition, not to eat of a particular tree. Adam, we know, could have earned eternal life had he been obedient, had he kept the covenant, but we know he broke it. In Adam breaking the covenant, he plunged himself and all of his children into ruin. Death and every other misery would now characterize our existence. He and Eve were driven from the Garden of Eden. They were driven from paradise. They were driven away from the presence of the tree of life because man had one opportunity. This is important. Man had one opportunity to earn eternal life and blessedness, and that's over. From now on, from the time of the fall onward, God was crystal clear. You will not have eternal life through works, through your obedience. It will come another way. It will come by grace, which is why in that same context of cursing the creation and pronouncing judgment upon humanity, God promised a savior, a redeemer who would come. One who would be born of woman, who would come and rescue God's people from their sins, who would conquer the great enemy of God's people, who is Satan, the ancient serpent, who is the devil. Fast forward a number of years, and God would give his law to his people. After he had called a man named Abram, changed his name to Abraham, and made promises to him of descendants and a land, God gave this people his law through Moses on Mount Sinai. Why did he give that law? Well, on the one hand, broadly, we can absolutely say he was teaching humanity what was good and bad, what was right and wrong. He was teaching humanity that if you pursue these things, it will go well for you. If you break this law, you can expect ruin and misery and judgment. The law, the moral law in particular, summarized into Ten Commandments written onto two tablets of stone, were also, we should rightly understand, an issuing, a reissuing of that covenant of works. What does God require for righteousness? He tells us what he requires for righteousness. And of course, in the giving of the law, God also instituted the gracious provision of the sacrificial system and the priesthood who would mediate for God's people. Law, here's what I require. Here is a sacrificial system. Here is a priesthood who will mediate for you. What was all that about? It was about the law that crushes us that we cannot live up to, we cannot keep. And it was about atonement for sins. All of the blood of rams and bulls and goats could never atone for sin, but the blood of the Savior would. It was about having a mediator between man and God, not some mere mortal human being, but one who would come and be the God-man whose name is Jesus, who would be the perfect mediator between God and man once and for all. This Messiah, we learned throughout the Old Testament, would come by way of Abraham and by way of Judah and by way of David. He would be a son of David who would reign in righteousness, who would keep the law, who would represent his people, who would be their righteousness. And then the Lord Jesus shows up on the scene. Before he's even born, the angel tells his father, you will call his name Jesus, 
because he will save his people from their sins. He's about 30 years old when his earthly ministry is going to begin. At the very beginning of that, before he preaches, before he does anything else, he's baptized. Why? He didn't need it. He's perfect. What does he say to John the Baptist, who rightly says, uh, you, you should be baptizing me. What does he say? It's appropriate that we would do this in order that all righteousness might be fulfilled. He did it for you. He did it for me. Immediately following his baptism, he was tempted in the wilderness. And with all due respect, the point of that temptation was not to teach us how to defeat the devil with the word of God. That's a secondary application at best. The point of his temptation was to demonstrate and to encourage and to cause us to believe that the new and better Adam is here. The first Adam failed and we were ruined in him. But this new one, he is victorious in every way that the first one fell. The first Adam was tempted in a paradise and had everything going for him. He had every advantage and he fell. The second one hadn't eaten for 40 days, is in the wasteland, in the wilderness, has everything stacked against him and he was victorious. The Redeemer is here, is the point. And he is doing this in accordance with the scriptures and he is doing it for our redemption. When it comes to his life, his entire life, and his entire earthly ministry, there are two kinds of ways that the Redeemer, Jesus, was obedient. And this matters for you and me. Both of these things matter for the faith to understand the gospel. First of all, he was obedient in a passive sense. What do we mean by that? We mean that he suffered his whole life. He didn't just suffer in his death. Hebrews 2, he was perfected by suffering. He suffered his entire life, and he suffered in his death. He was obedient in a passive way for us. In his death, he took our penalty. He died as a lawbreaker in the place of lawbreakers as our representative. But he was also obedient actively. His active obedience, by that we mean he fulfilled the law. He lived a life that was perfect and blameless. He was obedient in every way. He did everything that God the Father requires for righteousness. And as our representative, his righteousness is counted as ours by faith. Both are critical to our understanding of what our Savior has done for us. If we only preach cross and we don't preach the fulfillment of the law and the active obedience of Christ, with all due respect, we are cutting the work of Christ in half. He did more than give us a clean slate. If that's what he did, we're damned to hell. But he gave us righteousness positively, everything that God would ever require. He did it. He did it because we can't. And let's be frank, we weren't even trying to. Let's not kid ourselves. Not only were we unable, we were unwilling. And he did it. We are, because of Christ, we are saved. Book it. This is how the apostles write. It's done. Redemption is over. It's so over that Christ is seated in the heavens. There's nothing left to do. He intercedes, yes and amen. He advocates us for uh, for us when we sin, yes and amen. But he is seated, friends, because the work is done and he's coming back one day to raise us from the grave that we might live with him, imperishable, incorruptible, forever. That's the faith. And so, what do we do? We trust Christ and we uphold the law. You realize that we consider the law here every week. You tracking with me? We think about God's law every week. Every week we are reminded of the primary reason the law was given. To show us what God requires, to show us that we fail, and to show us the one who did it in our place. That's huge. Every week we consider 
how it is good for our lives to pursue righteousness, to live according to the law, and how it's harmful for us to break God's law and live contrary to it. And every week, we consider how the law is our perfect guide for living in the Lord Jesus Christ. Friends, quite simply, anytime we talk about loving God and loving neighbor, we are upholding God's law. Romans 13, 8 to 10, Paul writes this. Owe no one anything except to love each other. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. Whenever we talk about how we are to love one another, which we do often, we are talking about the law of God. We seek by the Spirit to be conformed to the law as we trust Christ. We don't do this. Here's important distinctions, right? The faith. We don't seek conformity to the law for our righteousness. Christ has handled that. We don't seek conformity to the law to escape punishment. Christ has handled that too. In Christ, the law no longer threatens us, nor does it condemn. And because of our union with Christ by faith, because we have been given life by God himself, we now delight in God's law and seek to live in light of it always. That's what we do. Second reflection. That was all on the faith. Second reflection is on, I'm using this term again, legitimate antinomianism. I want to talk about it with you for a moment so that we have these categories. You might think, bro, I've never heard antinomian. Well, I've never heard of that in my life. It's a word we need to know. Again, the breakdown of the word, anti against namas law, against the law, antinomian. This is what is being promoted by the certain people, as Jude calls them, in this church context. To be an antinomian in this sense would mean the following. It would mean, number one, a denial of God's moral law as the guide for our lives in Christ. The denial of God's moral law as having any relevance, any kind of binding oughtness to it in terms of how Christians live. The second big piece is the positive promotion of immorality as an expression of Christian freedom, celebrating licentiousness because of grace. It's clear that there are people in the history of the church who have done these things, who deny the place of God's moral law in the life of the Christian. It ought not be done. Who promote, you see this amongst people. It's not, it's not a situation where, yeah, there are bad things that we ought not do and we fail in being obedient. That's not what we're talking about. But there is actually a positive promotion of, being, of just wiling out because we can and because of grace. We ought not do that. If you're sitting here thinking, like, brother, I'm, I'm helped by the description. I hope you think that. But if you're thinking, like, we don't do that here. Exactly. We don't do that here. We preach grace. You can't biblically, you realize this, biblically you cannot overemphasize grace. That term, hyper-grace, is a terrible term. I don't even know what that would mean. To be overly emphatic about grace, good grief, it's the only hope we have, but we define grace properly like we thought about a minute ago. We don't promote lawlessness here. We don't deny God's moral law as the guide for our lives here because we're not this. 
May the Lord protect us that we would never be that. So that's just a brief reflection on legitimate antinomianism. It's what was going on here. That word is thrown around a ton by people today. And I think we need to be precise in terms of what it means. Next reflection. This is important. This is a question for us. So, all right, bro, in, in light of the fact that you're saying that this antinomian stuff is real, that there are always going to be people who say, well, because grace, you know, let's just live it up. Let's be licentious because grace. How then do we respond? How do we best contend for the faith in the light of those objections? Well, thank God he's not silent about that in his word. He's given us some stuff. It's really helpful. We're going to do a little Bible drill. It's always, it's always good to interpret scripture with scripture. It's always good to think biblically about how we might do something. How did the apostles respond to these objections? How did Paul do it in particular? Romans chapter 6. If you have your Bible with you, you can turn with me. I'm turning right now in real time. Romans chapter 6. Many are familiar with this wonderful letter of Paul to the Romans. You know that he's set up a brilliant argument where he has made it clear that all men, Jew and Gentile alike, stand condemned before the holy God who is impartial and always judges rightly. He has made clear that no man will be justified by works of the law, which is why righteousness, the righteousness of God has been revealed apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, it is the righteousness of God that is given to sinners by faith in Christ. He's made that brilliant argument. He's given biblical illustrations from redemptive history, namely with Abraham, of how we are counted righteous by faith. Then in chapter five, not only does he assure us that we have peace with God and that the love of God has been poured into our hearts by the Holy Spirit, he tells us that when we were still enemies, Christ died for us. So how much more so now will we be saved by him? And then he says that with the very righteousness of God's righteous one, the many are counted righteous. He starts to talk about this term that we call imputation. We are counted, we are credited with the righteousness of Christ himself. And then at the end of Romans 5, he says, the law came in to increase the trespass. The law came in to crush sinners in their sin, verse 20. But where sin increased, grace abounded all the more because of Christ. So then he anticipates an objection. It's the one that wells up in the minds of every fallen human. Uh, so you're saying that we should sin, right? If grace abounds all the more when we sin, we should just sin. And he says, by no means. Let me tell you all of these things you are to do. No, he doesn't say that. He says, by no means. And then he is going to point the saints to their union with the Lord Jesus by faith. He's going to point them to their baptism. He's going to talk to them about who they are now. He's going to tell them, here is who you are in the Lord Jesus. Do you not know that all of you who are baptized into him were baptized into his death, into his resurrection, that you too might be raised to walk in newness of life? Do you not know that via your union with Christ by faith that you have been set free from the dominion of sin? You're no longer a slave. You're free. On the one hand, obey because you can. Secondly, verse 17, because of what God has done via union with Christ and giving you life, you now have become obedient from the heart. You actually want to obey God now. What are you talking about? Should we just sin? That's one answer. By no means do we sin because we are in Christ Jesus now. We've been set free to obey and we have now become obedient from the heart. Why would we ever go on sinning? Next passage to consider. How does Paul respond to these kinds of things? Lawlessness in the church. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. You can turn there. The context of this is also important. Many know that in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul writes to that church of a man who was participating in gross immorality, the kind of immorality that Paul says even pagans know is wrong. He rebukes the entire church for it because he says, you are arrogant. He means this very thing we've been talking about. You're arrogant in this thinking that grace gives you permission to do this. 
But what you ought be doing is removing this man from your midst so that he might be saved, so that he might be restored. Then he goes into talking about how it's just really bad there in Corinth. I mean, Christians are suing each other. It's a mess. And how does he then confront that? This just wild, lawless, reckless living. How does he confront it? He confronts it with law and gospel. Law and gospel. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9 to 11. Do you not know? He's going to use the law here. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God, period. So a lot of times what we have heard, I fear, I know I've heard this anyway at points, is a preacher would be wrestling with his text and we know, okay, well, we all still sin because we're not perfect even after regeneration, after the new birth. We're not perfect. We still sin. So what we then begin to say is that, well, no, well, what we need to do is not live a life characterized by these things. We just need to not do these things too much. And I would just say with all due respect, it's not what it says. It's not what the text says. Paul means what he writes, that anybody who does these things will not inherit the kingdom of God because God's law is against these things. The judgment of God is coming against these things. Part of his argument here is why saints? Why would we continue to engage in things against which the wrath of God is coming? Why? But then look at what he does in verse 11. He's given them law. Now he gives them gospel. And such were some of you. Past tense. You used to be that. You're not now. How is that? You were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified. God, the just, declared you righteous in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Amen to that. How do we respond to this objection? Well, we should just sin. Brother, sister, don't you know what the law says? No, we don't do that. And remember Christ. Remember the gospel. Remember what he's done for you. Second Peter chapter 1. Peter makes it very clear even there in verse 9 that fruitlessness, ineffectiveness as a believer is a result of forgetting that we've been cleansed of our former sins. Remember Christ. Finally, Ephesians chapter 5. We'll do this briefly. Yet another illustration of how Paul responds to just this potential objection in the minds of people, how he exhorts the saints. Many know in Ephesians, Paul has, for three chapters, given a soaring doctrine of grace and God's love for us before the foundation of the world and what Christ has accomplished. And then he turns in chapter 4 to talk about life in the church. Then in chapter 5, beginning in verse 1, he exhorts the saints, be imitators of God as beloved children. This is 1 John 3, 3. Everyone who thus hopes in Christ purifies himself as he is pure. Be imitators of God. Walk in love, but as it comes to immorality, have nothing to do with it. Take no part in it. Do not be deceived. At one time, verse 8, you used to be darkness, but now you're light. Walk accordingly. Try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. Expose these deeds of darkness by the light. Well, what is that light? It's the law of God. And then offer Christ. For anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore, it says, awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Law, gospel, identity, union with Christ. This is how the apostles respond to these objections. May the Lord continue to teach us that we may too respond this way. Someone may ask, well, bro, what about if people remain in hard-hearted, presumptuous, unrepentant sin? What about that? It's a great question. God has given us a means of dealing with that too, and it's called church discipline which is a tool of God's love 
that he has given us in order to keep his people and in order to protect his church. And time does not allow comment from me right now on church discipline. We do in God's providence have an address plan for next Sunday afternoon following the service, and we'll entrust ourselves to that time to consider church discipline. Now I want to conclude our time together with just a concluding final reflection. I've given this the heading, Legalism, Antinomianism, and the Gospel of Grace. Legalism, Antinomianism, and the Gospel of Grace. If you don't understand all of those terms, don't wig out. Just track with me. I think it will become plain. In contending for the faith, we do not smuggle the law into the gospel. We don't smuggle the law into the gospel a la legalism. And we don't use the gospel to abolish the law altogether a la antinomianism. And realize this, legalism and antinomianism, both of these postures, obeying for righteousness, lawlessness, they come in one sense from the same place. They come in one sense from the legal frame, the legal spirit that humans have in us. Track with me for a minute. This kind of legal frame, this legal bent that we have, there's a number of problems that flow out of it. One problem is that we always tend to turn the gospel into a kind of law. We do. There are things that we need to do. There are things we need to abstain from. There are things we need to appropriately feel. And here's the kicker. Our righteousness, our standing before God is wrapped up in all this. That is not biblical. That's a problem. We are often, because of our legal frame, motivated by merit. We're going to earn something. We're going to bring something to God on the basis of which he would show us his favor. That's a problem. The legal frame results in us being motivated by fear, by dread, or by this escape of punishment. If I do well enough, I'll escape judgment. That's a problem. There are other ones. As a result of having a legal spirit, we view God's law as unnecessarily restrictive. We view it as prohibitive. And in doing that, saints, here's the heart of the matter. When we think like this, we divorce God's law from God himself. We divorce God's law from God himself. We lose sight of him. We lose sight of his character, of his love. We lose sight of his grace. And we see him primarily as an exacting, forbidding kind of God. That distortion is the poison of legalism. And then here's the kicker. The antidote that human beings come up with that we call antinomianism is nothing other than a mutation of this very same poison. I hope that makes sense to you. Because often if you notice people that promote crazy living in the name of grace, usually what's happened there is deep down they hate the law because they see it as frightening. They see it as prohibitive. They see it as damning. They're afraid of it. So the response is, well, Grace, there's something about grace that we can say. We're saved by grace. And now we're just going to, whenever the law is talked about, we just kind of plug our ears, we scream at the top of our lungs, and we run the other direction so that I don't have to deal with that anymore because grace. Saints, here, here's the bottom line. The only antidote to what ails us is the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. The only antidote to what ails us is union with Jesus by faith. Why is that? It's because Christ, who he is and what he did, is the gospel. Track with me. Here's what I'm getting at. We often talk as though the benefits of the gospel are the gospel. We often talk like eternal life, righteousness, forgiveness of sins are the good news through Christ. It's as though, in one sense, we'd never say it this way, but it's as though Christ is a means to an end, right? 
Christ is the way to have eternal life and forgiveness and righteousness. But you see, those benefits, eternal blessedness, righteousness, forgiveness, are in Christ only. They do not exist apart from him. Jesus did not simply accomplish redemption. Saints, he quite literally is redemption. That's what the book says. He has become to us wisdom and righteousness and sanctification and redemption, 1 Corinthians 1. He is all those things, and all those things are ours. How? Via union with him. Everything that is his becomes ours. When we understand this, that Jesus didn't just accomplish redemption, he is our salvation. It affects how we preach. Because the question for me or any other preacher, having come to this understanding, is not, how do I offer the benefits of Christ to these people? It's not the question. The question is, how do I preach Christ himself to these people? That's the question. It's a difference. When we come to this understanding, it affects how we hear, how we listen to the word of God. The question for us as we sit under the word, myself included, under the word, is not how can I get the benefits of the gospel? Rather, the question is, who is the Christ who himself is the gospel? Who is he? May I see him? And then how is it? Tell me, brother, how is it that he has saved me? There's a difference. You see, we live from this reality of our union with the Lord Jesus. The most common way for believers to be referred to in the New Testament is through that phrase, in Christ. Who are we? We are those who are in Christ. For it is Christ who lives in us. The life we now live, we live by faith in the Son of God who gave himself up for us. May God give us grace for our faith. Beloved, there is a Savior who is sufficient to save even you and every person who comes to him in faith. He is able. There is fullness of grace in Jesus Christ. And in him, we died to the law. And that matters because in dying to the law in the Lord Jesus Christ, we've been set free so that we might live to God. And to that end, let's pray.